Welcome back to The Dry Plug. I'm Mike. This is PDP episode number 12. It'll follow the NIOSH report number F2011-18. It's entitled, A Career Captain Dies and Nine Firefighters Injured in a Multi-Story Medical Building Fire. This happened in North Carolina. The date of occurrence was July of 2011. The release date for this report from NIOSH was June of 2012. We'll start by discussing the fire department. This career fire department has 12 stations with 237 uniform members who serve a population of approximately 83,000 residents with a daytime population of 125,000 to 150,000 people within an area of about 60 square miles to include all of their contracted areas. The fire department responds to approximately 14,000 to 15,000 emergency calls annually. Specialty units consist of hazardous materials mitigation, swift water rescue, high angle rescue, dive rescue, and confined space rescue. So, you know, they're an all hazards department. The fire department operates 17 companies and it consists of 11 engine companies, which includes one squad and one quint, four trucks, one rescue, and one tender. The fire department has written policies and procedures which are available to all department members within their stations. Policies and procedures on the incident command system, personnel accountability system, high-rise operations, and truck company operations were in place at the time of this event. Their training and experience, North Carolina has specific requirements and recommendations to become either a volunteer or career firefighter. These firefighters met or exceeded all of their training. We'll discuss the structure. The incident involved an approximately 122,862 square foot, six-story commercial structure which contained numerous medical offices and was built in 1982. The commercial structure consisted of five upper floors, a ground floor, and a basement. The exterior construction was cast concrete panels. Doesn't really indicate whether it was precast or cast on site. They were reinforced by steel columns and I-beams and large glass window panels on every floor. The roof was flat and constructed of corrugated steel decking finished with a rubber membrane, asphalt, and approximately an inch thick layer of gravel. A parapet wall, approximately three feet high, surrounded the perimeter of the roof. The interior construction was drywall over metal studs comprising numerous interior rooms and hallways. The floors were poured concrete that were covered primarily with carpeting, but some areas were tiled. The ceilings were suspended acoustical tiles supported by a metal grid. The building is accessed at the ground level by two main areas, a set of glass doors near the center of the structure on side B, which is the north side, and side A. Two steel personnel doors were on side A, one near each end of the structure. The structure had two internal stairwells, north and south, with an access to the roof and a set of internal elevators. The structure was equipped with an automatic fire alarm. Now, it says, there's a note that says that the automatic alarm had false alarmed five times within the previous 30 days. 
It also notes that the lack of sprinklers throughout this commercial structure significantly increased the health and safety exposure and risk to firefighters, as we are all aware. The structure was equipped with a wet standpipe, which was supplied by an underground municipal water supply from the east side of the structure. The standpipe went up to the top floor in both the north and south stairwells. Fire department connections fed into the basement, into the standpipe system, which served as a supplemental water supply. The FDC was designed to provide water to the standpipe system if the pressure in the FDC was greater than the pressure in the municipal water supply. A two and a half inch fire department hose line connection with shutoff valve was supplied by the standpipe at each floor landing and housed in a metal cabinet. Each cabinet also contained a hundred foot of inch and a half fire hose used for trained building occupants. The standpipe system included several screw and yoke valves, two gated shutoff valves, and a backflow preventer. All the valves were verified to be open at the time of the post-incident fire investigation. Several firefighters stated and recorded radio traffic indicated that no water or water pressure was in the standpipe system. Also, some firefighters observed a dirty black substance mixed with water at the standpipe fire department hose line connection which they believe may have clogged the water supply. During the incident, the hose line that was deployed in the north stairwell was prematurely charged, causing numerous kinks in the hose line and possibly a partially open valve, which greatly inhibited water flow. More notes. One, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms inspected, flow tested, pressure tested, and concluded that the standpipe was fully operational and functional as designed. In addition, the fire department, with NIOSH investigators observing, recreated the standpipe connection process and concluded that when the hose line was properly deployed, there was enough water pressure to put water on the fire. The second note is that the fire stairwell in the building had a significant volume of smoke from the fifth floor down to the lobby level due to entrainment from a phenomenon known as reverse stack effect. Reverse stack effect results from a temperature difference between warm outside and cooler inside air that creates a buoyancy-driven downward flow of air and smoke from the top to the bottom of tall buildings. Firefighters described the smoke in stairwells as being very dense, stating that they were forced to breathe supplied air prior to arriving at the fire floor. Now, if you need any visual on stack effect, just watch, uh, uh, there's a YouTube video from Dave McGrail and the Denver Fire Department, just a real brief, I think it's under a couple minutes long, uh, clip that shows how stack effect affects the building itself and, and airflow. But this is a, a very standard medical building for most municipalities. You know, kind of a mid-rise, low-rise, mid-rise type operation. It's got this um, kind of lightweight construction, but, you know, metal studs and things like that in the, in the office portion. There's not a whole lot to say about that. If things went kind of aside somewhere in the event, uh, you just have to kind of remember that you, you can't bust those studs loose. If you had to go reduce profile to get through a, a hole or a breach in the wall, you can't bust those studs loose at the bottom. They're, they're screwed in on both the top and bottom where they meet that channel that they rest in. Um, but other than that, you can you can certainly kind of bend the middle into an O shape and, and get through in pretty quick time. It's certainly something to think about. 
how you're going to exit the structure uh, if things go badly and where you can find refuge if you absolutely have to. Those are always things we should think about going into a um, an unknown floor plan and a essentially commercial structure. But this reverse stack effect, you know, it's causing this smoke to essentially just kind of hammer down on from the top floor to the bottom floor. So it's going to be a real problem. Breathing air from Jump Street is going to obviously deplete air supplies. You know, and then you have to put that in perspective with Moore's disorientation sequence. One of the steps in that sequence of disorientation is a change in conditions that are worse or intensified in comparison to how things began. You know, this was a crappy situation from the get-go. And then you have to figure that there's the fatigue of carrying materials that are necessary to just affect a fire attack from the stairwell. Cardio is obviously something that we can be, that we can train on. And I don't advocate working out in bunker gear to acclimate because, you know, it's just what, it's just exposure to more carcinogens. But get your VO2 max up. The rest should take care of itself. We can train on this and we should be. We, we kind of owe it. Um, a lot of us are contracted to work out. So just work out. Get your, get your VO2 max up. If you, if you have time in your day, fit it in. I like to do my cardio before I come in in the mornings. Um, and that just kind of gets me set up for the day. It's, so it's technically not station training, but it's still training for the job. You know, five stories packed out and breathing air, it's going to take its toll regardless. You have to breathe air from the, from the time you make entry. It's going to take its toll. Around here, you know, when we're making a high rise, we remove our coats and attach them to the, the hook that's on the left shoulder strap. We wear Scott air packs and then we put our lid on there as well so that we can walk up in just shirt sleeves. Stairwells and high rises are really balmy places and that coupled with just physical exertion can basically just ensure dehydration before you even start your fire attack. This is, you know, a low rise event. There's not much need to ascend without your gear. They're going to be tired though, if even just from having to breathe against their regulator during ascent. A high-rise cache is easily trained on. Um, you can get used to carrying that stuff. You can even tabletop kind of who's going to take what based on riding position. But applying the cache to a scenario is going to expose weaknesses in the plan and then hopefully ensure that companies arrive on the fire floor with everything they need to start this process. Personnel and equipment. The fire department dispatched to the automatic alarm two engines, one truck, and a squad. Upon notification of a working fire, an additional engine, rescue company, division chief, battalion chief, safety officer, and a fire marshal were dispatched. Note, engine two requested a second alarm, but due to multiple radio transmissions on the dispatch channel, it was missed by the communication center. The communication center never acknowledged the request and only dispatched the working fire units. Another alarm was not dispatched for 25 minutes. When the third alarm was requested, it was actually the second alarm that was dispatched. 
but on this scene, you're going to have, you know, just based on the numbers, they kind of um, indicate 23 to maybe 25 working members. Of course, depending on how they all arrive and what personnel are, are kind of deployed. But that's what I'm counting is 23 to 25 uh, on this on this event. Weather, um, the weather was clear with an approximate temperature of 87 degrees. The relative humidity was 46, and the wind was variable at 4 to 6 miles per hour. It says that the weather may have had an impact on the incident. I think in the biggest way, um, it was the, the temperature difference and the, and the stack effect. Let's begin the investigation. On July 28, 2011, at 1228 hours, dispatch sent Engine 1, Engine 2, Truck 1, and Squad 1 to an automatic fire alarm at a multi-story medical building. Upon arrival at 1229, one-minute response time, the Engine 2 captain reported a working fire with heavy smoke and fire showing on the top floor rear of the structure and requested a second alarm. Deputy Chief 4, Battalion Chief 1, Engine 6, Rescue 3, Safety Officer, and I'm thinking that's a medical, uh, some medical personnel, FM, were dispatched to fill the working fire dispatch, but a second alarm was not dispatched as it was missed by the communication center due to multiple radio transmissions on the dispatch channel. At 12.32, Engine 2's captain and firefighter made entry on the alpha side of the structure with 150 feet of two and a half inch hose line in a high rise pack. You know, pretty standard so far. Firetac took the hose packs up to probably the floor below and they kind of started to hook in. They met the structure's maintenance personnel near the lobby who had been evacuating civilians. The engine two crew used the elevator without putting it in the fireman mode and took it to the fourth floor. On the fourth floor, the engine two captain passed command to the next arriving officer and advised civilians to evacuate. After observing the fifth floor, Alpha Bravo corner from the fourth floor parking garage, Skywalk, the engine two crew went back and took the elevator to the fifth floor. At 12.34, engine one staged on the Charlie side to hook up to the FEC and to pump through the standpipe system. The Engine 2 crew went on air and reported heavy smoke and intense heat as they located the standpipe connection at the fifth floor landing of the north stairwell. They began to connect the high-rise hose pack. Deputy Chief 4 arrived on scene and assumed command of the incident. You know, something I didn't really think about was the time of day. So this is, you know, the noon hour. Um, it There's really no reason to suspect a fire of this intensity during this time of day in a in an occupied um, commercial type structure so this speaks to some things that expectations for your crew and for your rig need to be set early and in a non-emergency time frame where we can discuss how we respond to these things i worked for a guy uh, years ago who if it was an auto alarm, we would go code one, you know, no lights, no sirens to the, to the event. His theory was that we would be upgraded by someone who would recognize 
the fire situation and upgrade our response. I don't like that mentality. That is not something that I subscribe to. What I say is we set the expectation early in our crew and on our rig that we dress out for everything that could be a fire because it could be a fire. This case, they had a one minute response time and they were ready to go, it sounds like, when the air brake set. So this is a good response and it's something that obviously we can train on, but even if just talking about the expectations, we can make this happen and be the most effective the earliest. But it sounds like they made their standpipe on the fire floor. This is, you know, usually not advisable for the very reasons that we're giving them hell at this point. Conditions are sometimes what really bad on the landing of the fire floor. Hooking in a floor below allows for a connection in a tenable space. And that doesn't typically require a person to be on air. Now, in this case, you know, we know that they were forced to remain on air from, from the time they entered the stairwell until they found the fire floor. So the safety officer arrived and tried to initiate accountability. Ladder one, engine one, and squad one crews were conducting primary searches on the lower floors to evacuate civilian personnel. At 12.39, rescue three arrived on scene and was assigned secondary search and rescue responsibilities. A minute later, engine six was also assigned fire attack. The engine one engineer notified command that water was established at the FEC to the standpipe system. At 1244, engine six was looking for the mechanical room to shut down ventilation to the fifth floor while rescue three was going up the north stairwell. At 1246, battalion chief one arrived on scene and was assigned rehab and to assist with the personnel accountability. Ladder one set up on Bravo's side of the building near the AB corner. Within the next several minutes, engine six had partially shut down the ventilation to the fifth floor and engine two had stretched the uncharged hose line about 115 feet clockwise around the north stairwell and elevators to a large room, which was a reception area, just prior to the hallway to the Alpha Bravo corner. Note, it says, in the pre-plan of the structure, the, the doorway of the north stairwell opened into the west hallway, but the door was moved 90 degrees in reality. Also, the door adjacent to the stairwell door was closed and thought initially to be a wall. This prompted the engine two crew to go clockwise, stretching the hose line. Several crews using the stairwell had dropped additional high-rise packs in the stairwell. The hose line was inadvertently charged, causing multiple kinks on the fifth floor between the standpipe connection and the fifth floor doorway. This is another great reason for hooking up into the standpipe on the floor below. It prevents the kinking of the hose that's filled in a tight spot. High-rise hoses already kind of minimally pumped, if not underpumped, due to just the forces acting on the standpipe in the system. The Engine 2 crew stretching the hose line noticed it was charged and flowed water for a few seconds to cool down the area. At 12.51 hours, the Engine 2 crew's SCBA low air alarm began going off, so they used the elevators to return to the ground floor to change SCBA cylinders. Approximately one minute later, the Rescue 3 crew on the fifth floor grabbed the hose line, could not get water to flow, flow and reported it to command. The Engine 1 engineer proceed, proceeded to connect 
to the FDC for the parking deck standpipe system in case they had been mislabeled. So he's, you know, he's thinking. At 12.55, Engine 2 requested that Ladder 1 attempt to get water on the fire at the Alpha Bravo corner using the master stream. The IC and SO did not grant the request due to the interior crews on the fifth floor. At 12.56, crews located the fire room and Engine 1 was connected to both standpipe systems. Engine 1 reported that there was still no water in the hose line. At this time, command requested a third alarm. Of course, when things start to go kind of pear-shaped, we got to get ahead of the, of the thing, so we start requesting more manpower. That's forward thinking. But remember, they, they'd already tried for the second alarm. Maybe they didn't realize that the second alarm hadn't arrived. To be in charge of a large fire with multiple moving parts and evacuations of potentially large numbers of people, you know, it's, it's highly confusing. The slip-up was obviously not intended, but a request that is unfulfilled can set the whole scene on its ass. Training for communications means training for discipline. Communication has to be concise and descriptive, and then it has to be read back by the receiver just for verification purposes. This verification step has saved so many orders from being left out and unfulfilled because, you know, if it's not done, it should prompt clarification from whatever link in the communication chain recognized the discrepancy you know, to ask for clarification. Truck one had to reposition to deploy the ladder and was told that the crews are on the fire floor, so they were not to use the master stream. Rescue three's crews, low air alarms were going off, so they headed to the north stairwell. At 12.59, the engine two crew was back on the fire floor after taking the elevator to the fifth floor. Truck one broke a window on the Bravo side and engine six was preparing an inch and three quarter hose line to bring up the ladder to hand through the window. So now we're working from the outside in, but you know, this is, this is what happens. You have to adapt to get this job done. Good, good on them. It's not ideal, but they're working. The engine two crew picked up the original hose line and moved it into the hallway, but reported they were 30 feet short and needed another section of hose. Engine 2 was fe feeling intense heat and thinking they were on the Bravo side. They took out a window on the Alpha side to cool down. At 1309, Engine 2 tried to get to the Bravo side window to retrieve the hose line from Engine 6 on the ladder, but could not get to it due to fire and heat. So, a broken window to cool things off just kind of intensified things. And that is, in a, in a situation like this, a big structure that you start out kind of disoriented anyway due to maybe what you might have seen in a, in a pre-fire plan. You know, things, things go sideways. And this thing uh, is now fed by a, kind of a, a, a bad vent, maybe getting uh, too much air where it doesn't need to be. Engine 6 made entry through the window as Engine 2 low air alarms were going off again. They made their way to the elevators and were coming out as Rescue 3, Engine 1, and Quint 5, and Engine 8, which was dispatched on the third alarm, which is, again, just the second alarm, were headed to the north stairwell. At 13.11, Engine 6 got water on the fire for the first time. Rescue 3 was back on Engine 2's original hose line, but reported to command that there was no water, and the IC ordered them out. Engine 6 requested air bottles be brought to the fire floor. 
Now, I don't, I don't want to keep beating this drum, but the fire floor is, again, not the best place for spare bottles. At least a floor below and out of the way of the ingress, egress path of the stairway. That's kind of best. Around here, we stage our bottles, I think, two floors below where the auxiliary equipment, you know, is also managed. And then here, staging for personnel is like three floors below. At 1316, Engine 8 was on the fire floor. They reported heavy smoke and heat and requested that the north stairwell be ventilated. Flames began venting out the Alpha side windows that were broken. Battalion Chief 1 requested a ladder truck be positioned on the Alpha side for possible use in getting water on the fire, venting from the windows. Engine 6 requested additional hose lines to reach the fire venting on the Alpha side. The Rescue 3 crew at the 5th floor north stairwell door noticed the Engine 8 captain and another firefighter were untangling high-rise hose line in the stairwell. One of the firefighters from Rescue 3 was extremely low on air, and the victim, who was the Rescue 3 captain, told the Rescue 3 engineer to take him down the stairs. The victim proceeded down the hallway instead of exiting down the stairwell. Another Rescue 3 firefighter, with only a few years' experience, and an Engine 1 firefighter noticed the victim headed down the hallway, so they followed after the victim. The victim and two firefighters ended up in a small alcove with a bathroom at the end of it, off the hallway to the fire room. All three firefighters, SCBA low air alarms, were going off. The two firefighters grabbed the victim and headed back into the Alpha side hallway. The victim was following the Rescue 3 firefighter, but the Engine 1 firefighter got separated from them in the hallway due to the heavy smoke. Now, I've been here. I've been separated from my crew in thick smoke and, you know, even just moderate heat conditions in my, in my case, in a commercial structure of unknown floor plan, and, and it's just no place to be. I've tried to remember in training to emphasize the importance of the radio on the fire ground. It's so often overlooked by mostly the lower ranks because they, what, they seldom have to speak over the radio anyway, so it isn't in their day-to-day -day habit yet. But it's super important. I've spoken before on that smoke and, and particularly that type of smoke that's, you know, it's impossible to hear through. It's like the whole world is covered in cotton and you feel like you're in a soundproof room. Yell all you want. It's not going to travel any further than the, than the end of your mask. If a person becomes separated, that radio can be really beneficial. Key up and tell your partner to start making noise. A tool on a hard surface, or again, as I've described in previous posts, that, that alligator clap with, with glove hands can be used to kind of, what, echolocate another member. Not every transmission over the radio has to be a mayday. A simple member-to-member -member contact can be made concisely over the radio to have someone help you out of a jam. The Engine 1 firefighter realized he was extremely low on air and thought about calling a mayday. He took about 10 steps and ran into the Engine 6 firefighter on the hose line from Truck 1. After, Shortly after, the Engine 1 firefighter followed the Engine 6 hose line to the window and got on the ladder just as he ran out of air. The victim told his partner they needed to buddy breathe as he dropped to his knees. The firefighter told the victim to call a mayday, which he did. Note, when the victim made his buddy breather connection he did not control the release of air 
and all of his partners air escape through the victim's unclipped regulator. A minute or two later, the victim experienced an uncontrolled SCBA emergency and vomited in his face piece and then removed his mask. The victim told his partner to activate his pass. The victim activated his pass, but inadvertently, the Rescue 3 firefighter turned his off. At 13.20, a mayday was transmitted by the Rescue 3 firefighter. The Engine 6 captain had radioed command and confirmed it was not the Engine 1 firefighter who had called the mayday, you know, because he was on the ladder. The Rescue 3 firefighter crawled to the elevators, decided not to use them, then crawled to a reception desk. Being out of air, he re removed his mask and called another mayday and dropped his portable radio in, you know, in his haste. He crawled down the Charlie side hallway toward the Delta side, trying numerous doors as he went along. He came across the door to the south stairwell. He placed his axe tool in the doorway and then crawled back down the hallway to the victim. The rescue three firefighter removed his helmet, gloves, and hood and drugged the victim on his back by his SCBA straps to the south hallway. The firefighter pulled on and rolled over the victim down the stairs until they ended up the, at the landing between the third and second floor. At 1341, the Engine 8 captain exited the north stairwell and located the victim and the Rescue 3 firefighter in the south stairwell when he heard the victim's pass alarm sound. The Engine 8 captain tried to give the victim air from his face piece. Note that the victim's pass alarm likely saved the life of his partner who had fallen down the south stairwell with the victim and lost consciousness. The officer who heard the pass alarm was down a hallway and had just exited the north stairwell. The pass alarm was heard through the fire door of the south stairwell. Two members from squad one and a member from engine two and rescue three assisted in moving the victim as they all made their way to the second floor elevator and took it to the ground floor. Medic units transported the victim and the rescue three firefighter to the hospital where the victim was pronounced dead and the firefighter was treated. The cause and origin. For the ATF report, the origin of the fire was in a records office on the fifth floor, sixth story now, at the AD corner. The cause of the fire was arson via a flammable liquid. Some recommendations for this fire alarm from NIOSH. Recommendation number one, fire department should ensure that the existing standard operating procedures for high-rise firefighting operations are reviewed, implemented, and enforced. Number two, fire department should ensure that a deployment strategy for low-frequency, high-risk incidents is developed and implemented. Number three, fire department should ensure that incident commander develops an incident action plan which is communicated to all firefighters on scene and includes effective strategy and tactics for high-rise operations a timely coordinated fire attack and a coordinated search plan. Number four, fire department should ensure that the incident commander utilizes division group supervision for effective tactical level management. Recommendation number five, fire department should ensure that incident commander designates a staging area at least two floors below the fire floor. Number six, fire department should ensure that firefighters are properly trained in air management. Number seven, fire departments should ensure that firefighters are properly trained in out-of-air emergencies and SCBA repetitive skills training, e.g. E buddy breathing and clearing a face piece. Number eight, fire departments should ensure that the incident commander is provided a chief's aid to assist in incident management, including communications and personnel accountability. 
Number nine, fire department should ensure that the incident commander establishes a stationary command post for effective incident management, which includes the use of a tactical worksheet, enhanced fire ground communications, and a personnel accountability system. Recommendation number 10, fire department should ensure that firefighters are properly trained and made a standard operating procedure guidelines and survival techniques. Number 11, fire department should ensure that incident commander designates an incident safety officer and assistant incident safety officer as necessary. Number 12, the department should ensure that staffing levels are maintained and effectively used. Number 13, fire department should use thermal imaging cameras during the search and firefighting operations. Number 14, fire department should ensure that a respiratory protection plan includes consideration for using large volume SCBA cylinders in target areas e.g. high-rise that may require longer duration work times. Recommendation number 15 states and municipalities should adopt and enforce regulations for automatic fire sprinkler protection in new buildings and renovated structures. Again, sound advice. These lessons learned are, are sound. This thing started on a it was not poorly managed necessarily. It was understaffed and that was due to a communication error. And that can happen. These guys were working very hard in a relatively small number of people for the first part, maybe half of this event. So it's something to consider training on that kind of communication is so key and so often in these line of duty deaths communication is the thing that kind of started the whole thing to unravel anyway i think that'll do it for this episode thanks for showing up and as always earn your days on the rig because we are all very lucky to have them and remember the fallen because they died heroes in service Thanks again. Next time.